Welcome to Third Man Walk. Since the poker boom of the early aughts, one of the overriding ideas about the poker economy is that the game keeps getting harder. Today, I want to examine that bit of conventional wisdom as it pertains to live poker. Does live poker really keep getting tougher? And what does that even mean? Pick a point in time going back over a decade. During that time, many poker pros were worried about whether poker was profitable enough for them to continue as professionals. And over the years, many pros did in fact quit or go broke to be replaced by a new group. Now, as we discussed last season, the success or failure of any one player is the result of any number of factors, not just how tough the games are. The player's luck, her money management, her skill level, her ability to control tilt, and so on. Many pros who leave the game do so because of some combination of these factors, or sometimes they just get good jobs. But the toughening of the games can feel like a vice at times. So what does this vice look like? Well, let's look at some rough numbers, starting not with how good our opponents are, but with the rake. A couple years ago, I played a few days a week in a 5-5 game in Los Angeles, and at one point, I got curious and started doing some back-of-the-envelope math. Typically, the first game at this casino opened at around noon, and a must-move table opened at around 2 o'clock. Frequently, the must-move shut down sometime between 6 and 8 p.m. I'm not actually sure what time the main game shut down, but let's say 1 a.m. This means the casino ran about 18 table hours of 5-5 each day. Now, Los Angeles uses a flat drop structure for its cash games. A dollar or two comes out of the pot before the flop, and then four or five dollars comes out on the flop, even if it's just a $15 pot. Then another dollar or two comes out on the turn. A little of that comes back to players in bad beat jackpots. But what's left is still an amazing amount of money. The amount the casino takes per hour depends on the game, but my guess is that it's probably about $150. And I should emphasize here that this is purely a guess on my part. $150 an hour for 18 hours a day adds up to about a million dollars a year, all to run two tables of 5-5. Five five. And that's before considering that dealers make most of their money from tips. If you're a regular in that game, you might pay $30,000 a year just in rake, and tips for the dealers and staff cost several thousand more. There used to be other perks to offset these charges. Perks that largely disappeared from LA casinos once they reopened following quarantine. Free meals and promos are mostly now gone. But even when those still existed, I'm pretty sure it was still the case that if you played regularly, you had to beat your opponents by tens of thousands of dollars a year just to break even while playing full-time. Now, if your opponents are horrible, that isn't too hard. But the better your opponents get, the more of a problem the rake becomes. Because of the rake, you don't just need your opponents to play imperfectly. You need them to play really badly. And the ways you need them to play badly aren't obvious on the surface. Now let's say, for example, that you have pocket aces in early position. You raise. And now let's press pause. You don't know it yet, but the flop is going to come ace, seven, four, with the ace and seven of diamonds. The turn will be the four of diamonds. Your pocket aces are going to make a full house. Now, how much money can you make? Well, it depends. Let's say that after your preflop raise, it folds around to the cutoff, who has king five of diamonds. 
You're going to make a lot more money in this hand if the cutoff is willing to call king five of diamonds against an early position raise. Or let's say that it folds to the big blind who has five four offsuit. You're going to make a lot more money if the big blind is willing to call preflop with five four off and then call a flop bet with it. When your opponents play more hands, they also hit more cards that beat yours. Sometimes 5-4 offsuit will crack your ace-king when it makes trips, instead of making a strong but inferior hand against your aces full. But those pots will usually be smaller than the ones you win, and generally, your opponent's looseness allows you to play more big pots with strong hands. If your opponents start folding weak hands like king-5 of diamonds and 5-4 offsuit, your chances of winning a huge pot with aces full shrink, and so does your profit. And, of course... You win when they don't flop anything at all, which is much more likely with very weak starting hands than it is with stronger ones. Now, of course, there's so much else that goes into this. As the years go by, our opponents get better in many phases of the game. But in live cash games, so much boils down to hand selection. As I believe others have pointed out, a weak opponent who plays 25% of hands will lose so much less than one who plays 50 the rake in Los Angeles, and in many other live environments, is high. And when the rake is high, you need a huge edge against your opponents to make money. Or to put it differently, your opponents need to find ways of losing lots of money to you. To win in live poker, your edge needs to be huge. Now over time, recreational players do get better at poker, sometimes significantly better. But in many cases, they don't actually learn much beyond one obvious thing, which is that they'll lose way less money if they play tighter. With rake, and especially with Los Angeles's rake structure, tighter games are much harder to beat. In spite of all that, though, the games lately have been pretty good. In fact, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the short-term future of live poker. There are a number of factors making things tougher, but the overall progression of live poker games from easy to hard is not a straight line. Let's contrast live poker with online poker here. If you play No Limit Hold'em on a public-facing online site like PokerStars, and you're in a pool of any decent size, like say 500 Zoom, I'm sure there are weeks or months that are clearly better than the weeks or months that preceded them, but the toughness of the games will mostly follow a fairly predictable path. Study aids get reliably more sophisticated, players are actually pretty diligent about learning from the study aids, and the various forms and gradations of cheating, such as real-time assistance programs, get reliably more sophisticated as well. Outside factors, the state of the economy, the pandemic, and so on, obviously also play a role. And the rate at which people improve in online games is probably mostly logarithmic rather than linear. We previously discussed the Pareto Principle, which suggests that 20% of the inputs create 80% of the outputs. Online poker players mostly cleared that 20% threshold long ago when they learned not to open limp and why they should 3-bet hands that aren't aces. So now we're mostly in that long tail, where many players continue to improve, but do so more slowly because they long ago figured out the really important stuff. It seems pretty clear overall, though, that public-facing online poker games have gotten tougher at a relatively predictable pace over time, and that they will probably continue to do so. Now, a few years ago, I probably would have said the same thing about live poker. But I'm increasingly unsure if that's true. Yes, a pro you face in a live poker game today will likely be better than she was a year ago. And yes, some recreational players, especially at higher stakes, 
also get much better over time. It's been especially striking watching some recreational players do that in Los Angeles. A lot of people here are quite smart, and I've seen some recreational players transition from being whales to probably breaking even just in the course of a couple years. But increasingly, I don't think the gradual improvement of the pool is the main factor in how tough the games are. Obviously, the economy has an enormous impact, and we're lucky to be living in times that, very recent history aside, have been quite good for people who have money in stocks or real estate or crypto. Another factor driving the quality of live poker games is enthusiasm for poker in general, and for live poker in particular. There isn't a single way of quantifying the popularity of poker at the moment, but it seems quite high. The availability of app games during the pandemic led to the return to poker of many players who might have been away from the game for years before that. Also, the emergence of vlogs as perhaps the key form of poker content has probably had an enormously positive effect. That's not something I could have imagined saying even a year ago, since I mostly thought vlogs were harmless but kind of goofy fluff, a form of entertainment that I didn't consume very much and didn't quite understand the appeal of. But vlogs only seem to be growing more and more popular, fueling the popularity of live poker both directly in the form of meetup games that bring players to casinos, and indirectly. Increasingly, I see players who are specifically at the table to create content of whatever kind, vlogs, Instagram, and so on. And I think it was these early vlogs by people like Andrew Nimi that gave people the idea to perform their poker hobbies, to think of their hand histories and sessions as stories of which they are the literal heroes. A big part of the appeal of vlogs too, as my friend Yalis pointed out, was that Nimi wasn't an obvious crusher, just a pretty good mid-stakes player whose life seemed colorful and maybe even slightly glamorous, but also attainable. You could watch him play 5.10 or 2.5 and see that it wasn't rocket science, that it was something you too could perhaps do one day, or maybe you'd be doing it already if you weren't so busy with whatever obligations you had. The fact that people like Nimi and Brad Owen also discussed strategy without ever going into it too deeply was also huge. Poker, for them, was a thinking person's game, but it never seemed like hard work. So these vlogs, with an assist from other YouTube-centered poker content, have probably made a huge difference. I have to give them credit. It took me a while to really see it, but they've been very good for the game. But the biggest factor driving game quality in live poker, especially at 510 and above, is how many international pros are in the games. There have been periods in LA in the past couple years where there have been very few and periods where there have been tons. Of course, it's impossible to quantify the impact these players have for all kinds of reasons, but my guess is that my win rate might be twice as high in a game with no international pros compared to one where international pros replace two random players. Now, obviously, the international players are pretty good, and they force me to try to avoid being exploited by them even in hands they aren't in. For example, certain holdings might be very profitable to call a raise with on the button, but not if there's an international pro in the blinds who likes to squeeze. It must also be said that there are also many of these international pros who aren't especially friendly or who hardly say anything, perhaps in part due to language barriers, but also perhaps in part because the ecosystem isn't really their concern, because they'll just be gone in a month anyway. It's also common to be in a casino that typically only has one or two 510 tables running in a single day, 
And then three or four of these international pros will arrive together, all wanting to play the same 5-10 game. That sort of thing has a huge impact on whether these games even run. Now, there are also international pros who are very friendly and who do seem interested in what they leave behind, and I have no issue with those players. They make the games worse by playing well, but so do I. And of course, I don't fault anyone for trying to make a living in this game. That's also what I'm trying to do, and it's the only reason I want to talk about this in the first place. Overall, though, pros, and especially pros traveling from outside the area, present the single biggest danger to live poker. In spite of all that, though, I am optimistic, and the main reason is that it's becoming increasingly clear that there are good poker games in many, many parts of the U.S. And this is something else that Yale, Live King Poker, and I have talked about a bunch, so credit to him for that. Five years ago, Los Angeles and Las Vegas were two of the most obvious places for international players to go, cities that offered big public games pretty much around the clock. The perception of Los Angeles as a poker hotbed was fueled in part by Live at the Bike, so I guess this is where I'm to blame for the games getting worse. Now, there isn't just LA and Vegas and a handful of places in Florida and Northern California, but there's also Dallas and Houston and Austin and Phoenix and Washington, D.C., and Maryland, and probably a few places I'm not even aware of. There are simply a lot of places for these players to go. And the endless hype for Texas games in particular has probably really helped pros like myself who are in other markets. If these international pros spread themselves among 10 markets rather than 4 or 5, live poker in the U.S. should remain viable for years to come. You may remember that I went to Dallas a few months ago to play for a while and didn't have that great a time. But increasingly, it's clear to me that I owe Texas a debt of gratitude. It's January 28th and I'm at what's hopefully the tail end of a couple of pretty frustrating weeks. A couple weeks ago, right around the time the last podcast came out, I started feeling sick when I was at the casino and came home for the day and ended up spending most of the next week at home. My symptoms were very much like COVID, but seemingly not COVID because I kept testing negative. But either way, I had to miss close to a week of of poker and there's not much I could have done. When I came back, I had a few pretty good days and then several really bad ones in a row. You know, the usual thing, not not something I really want to complain about too much. I know that that since I've, since I started this podcast in uh, late 2019, I've run pretty well and haven't faced a ton of resistance, except in that there were several months during quarantine where I wasn't really able to play. But I can't really complain about the way I've, I've run overall. And, you know, I've, I've, finally gotten some friction here in the past few months and it's annoying but there's nothing out of the ordinary about it in this case i've just had a lot of really strong hands that have run into even stronger hands there was one in which i had a set of fives on a board of five three deuce and ran it into six four for the straight another one where i got in a bunch of money preflop with ace-king suited against a player who could be wide and ran that into aces. So just a bunch of hands like that. 
I've also had a bunch of hands where I three bet preflop with what I assume was the best hand and then the deck just kind of didn't pick me. And I've also faced a bunch of really bad runouts that uh, forced me to fold. And <laughs> I- I've definitely gotten bluffed in a couple of those spots. There was one hand especially that that stung me. I'm playing 510. There are two limpers. I raised to $65 in the hijack with black kings. The small blind calls and both limpers fold. So about 150 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes queen, eight, four with the eight and four of clubs. My opponent checks. I bet $75 with my black kings and he calls. So about $300 heading to the turn, which comes the 10 of hearts, creating a backdoor heart draw. So now queen, eight, four, 10 with two clubs and two hearts. And again, I have kings with the king of clubs. My opponent checks, I bet $200 and he calls. So there's about $700 in the pot heading to the river. He has about pot behind and it comes the six of clubs. So now queen, eight, four, 10, six with the front door club draw having completed. And now my opponent leads for $375, a a little more than half his stack. And yeah, this guy's completely unknown to me. I'd never seen him before. And sure looks like he has a flush. I do have the king of clubs in my hand, but I think that you're just going to be hemorrhaging money if you make a bunch of calls in these kinds of spots because it certainly looks like my opponent got there. And, you know, the other question is, well, if he didn't get there, then what's he bluffing with? And that's pretty tricky to figure out because so much of what my opponent has should have some sort of perceived showdown value. Like you know, at least like a pair of tens or something like that on a board like this. So if he's bluffing, he has to be getting pretty creative here. And I just don't think you make a lot of money assuming that random opponents are that creative. So I make the fold and, and, uh, give the speech about how bad I'm running because I'm a fish and my opponent shows pocket nines with the nine of clubs. So called with a gutter on the turn and then saw an opportunity when the flush came in on the river led and uh, got me off the best hand. So, I I mean, I just get a terrible run out and uh, the action is, is kind of terrible for me. I like my fold, but I've played several hands like this in the past week or so where, where I got a terrible run out and made a fold like this and either was shown some really weird hand that I was beating or don't know what my opponent had and uh, have to have to wonder, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the lesson is in that. I, I think if you're if you're calling with pocket kings in that spot, even with the king of clubs in your hand, you're going to be losing a lot of money. But um, this time it worked out in the opposite way. So whatever, I'll just try not getting a terrible run out next time. So I'm going to go back here a few days to before all the run bad really got started. And this was an interesting session of 510. I think I've gotten to a lot of interesting situations post-flop. And the first one of those is in this first big hand of the day. And in this one, there are six limps. And that tells you a lot about what kind of game you're in. So six limps here, you love to see it. And you also love to see pocket aces in the big blind. And that's what I have. So I make it $110 to go. The first two limpers call, everyone else folds. Now I know the first limper, 
He is uh, a fun player who I expect will be willing to put a lot of money in pots with me. I don't know the second player at all. So there's $365 already heading to the flop, which comes king nine four with the nine and four of clubs. So I bet $165, about 40% of the pot here. The first limper calls and the second limper now raises to $700. It's back on me and again, the flop is king nine four with two clubs and I have pocket aces without a club. So we're playing about $1,500 effective at this point. So this is basically an all-in bet. If I continue in this hand, I'm going to have to be willing to call off the rest of it on the turn or just ship it all in here myself. So the question is how often I think my opponent is doing this with a hand like Jack-10 of clubs or King-X of clubs. And for me to continue, I think the answer has to be a lot because even if my opponent has a combo draw or a pair plus a draw, those hands aren't doing badly against pocket aces without a club. Uh, one thing I did know about this guy in an hour or so or half hour or so of playing with him was that when he raised in earlier situations, he used much smaller sizings. He put in a couple of min raises post-flop and also used a sort of min three bet sizing. I don't know exactly what that means because I never saw any showdowns. But my guess is that when he uses this bigger sizing, he's probably a little bit more weighted to made hands like pocket fours or king nine suited. Those are really the only made hands that make a lot of sense, but I think he has those a lot. So I end up letting this hand go and the other player folds as well. So I don't find out what my opponent had. You hate to just fold pocket aces on a flop, but this seemed like unfortunately a spot to do it. In this next hand, there are two limps, and I race to $70 in the big blind with ace-king with the ace of spades. Both limpers call. So now there's $210 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes king, five, deuce, with the five and deuce of spades. So again, I have ace-king with the ace of spades. I bet $80. Both players call. So now there's $450 in the pot. The turn is an offsuit, seven. So now king, five, deuce, seven with two spades and I have ace-king with the ace of spades. I bet $265, the first limper calls and the second limper folds. So now there's 980 in the pot and the river is the six of spades. So now king five deuce, seven six with three spades. I do have the ace of spades of course in my hand so I block the nuts, but this is not what I wanna see. It makes a lot of sense for my opponent to have a flush here and so I check and he thinks for a while and checks back. And I table my hand. My opponent shows king, queen of clubs and mucks. And I get to take down a pretty nice pot. In this next hand, there's one limp and I raise to $50 in the hijack with ace queen offsuit. The button and limper both call. So there's 160 in the pot and it comes Ace, eight, three with the eight and three of diamonds. I do not have a diamond in my hand. The limper checks, I bet $65, the button calls and the limper folds. So now there's $290 in the pot and the turn is seven of clubs, creating a backdoor club draw. So now ace, 
eight, three, seven with two diamonds, two clubs, and I have ace queen offsuit. So I want to bet to continue to target one pair of tight pans, uh, as well as any diamond draw my opponent might have. So I bet $165 and he again makes the call. So now there's 620 in the pot and the river is in offsuit nine. So now ace eight, three, seven, nine, both the flush draws have bricked and now I have a decision. So against some opponents, I would check here and try to get them to bluff with any flush draw they might have that is missed. However, I don't think this player is the sort to bluff a missed flush draw. So I think it's gonna be more profitable for me to bet and hope that my opponent has a weaker ace than mine. That's a little bit dicey because my opponent can easily have something like ace nine, but he can also have ace jack, ace 10, and then hands like ace six or ace five. So I wanna bet, I don't wanna bet too big, I do make it 240 here into 620 and my opponent calls. I table my hand and he shows ace-jack offsuit and mucks. So I'm happy to have gotten that third street of value in on the river. This next hand is one I posted on Instagram. If you don't follow my Instagram, you should. I've been posting hand histories there over the past few weeks, having some fun with it. So in this one, there's one limp and the button raises to $25. So I'm in the small blind with ace 10 offsuit. So I'm going to be playing my entire range as a three bet or fold here. And this is not a standard three bet for me, but it's close. If I had ace jack offsuit, I would almost certainly three bet. If I had ace 10 suited, I would almost certainly three bet. And because I'm so close to the line and because I suspect my opponent is weak after raising to this very small size over a limp, uh, I do go ahead and decide to three bet and make it 120. I, I think when he raises to $25 over a limp of $10, what most players are trying to do when they do that is buy the initiative in the hand, basically get to be the one that, that post flop is saying, hey, I have a strong hand, I'm gonna see bet and they're unlikely to actually be strong. So it folds back around to the button, and now I notice that he actually is not super deep at all, and he ends up going all in for $385. And if I had seen how short my opponent was, I would not have raised to $120. I probably would have just folded, but I didn't see that. So now this is an annoying spot, it's 265 more dollars for me to call and try to win a pot of almost $800. So I've kind of given myself a price at this point. Even if I'm dominated, I'm almost doing well enough that calling is fine. I think I am dominated a lot, but I think when somebody ships in their last $385, they don't have to be that strong. And I think I could sometimes run into weaker ASX. I could sometimes run into hands like pocket eights that I flip against. I've made this crappy bed and now I have to lay in it. So I reluctantly make the call. My opponent shows ace queen offsuit. So he does have me dominated. The flop comes queen 10 X and the turn comes at 10. So I end up winning this one a little bit unjustly. Sorry, buddy. Uh, you got me. But it is nice on occasion being the person getting there on somebody rather than it happening to me. 
In this next hand, I have pocket queens in the hijack and raised to $35. The cutoff calls and now the button re-raises to $100. He only has a stack of about 675. And so as it folds back around to me, I think that my hand is just gonna be too strong when my opponent has only 67 big blinds to do anything but go with, even though I suspect my opponent has something pretty good here. This was the same opponent who limp called with king queen suited earlier. So I'm not in love with this situation at all, but I think that my hand is still just strong enough to go with here. So I make the four bet to $300. The cutoff gets out of the way, the button shoves, and I of course call. The runout is ace, three, three, 10, jack. So basically at this point I beat almost nothing. And I certainly don't beat pocket aces, which is what my opponent turns up with. So I don't feel great about this spot in retrospect, but it's always so obvious in hindsight. I'd only had a couple hours with this player. So yeah, I mean, pocket queens, 67 big blinds, whatever, nice hand. In this next one, the low jack raises to $30. The hijack and button call, and I call in the big blind with king jack with the jack of clubs. So four ways to a flop here, $120 in the pot, and it comes queen 10, nine with the 10 and nine of clubs. So I flop the absolute nuts with my king jack. I check it over to the preflop raiser. He bets $60, the hijack calls, the button folds, and now with the nuts and unblocking all kinds of other strong hands, I'm of course going to be raising. I make it $275 and both players call. So I'm praying here for a card that doesn't change the board. And unfortunately, that is not what I get. So $945 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit 10. So now queen, 10, nine, 10. So it's possible for either player, but especially the preflop raiser to have all kinds of full houses here. I check it over to him. He bets only $250. So a little bit more than a quarter of the pot. The other player calls, and I think getting this price, I have to continue, even though I'm not at all happy about how this hand is going. So I do make the call. And so now 1695 in the pot heading to the river, which is the six of clubs completing front door clubs. So now queen, 10, nine, 10, six with three clubs. And again, I have king jack with the jack of clubs. I check. The preflop raiser now bets $700. The hijack folds, and now I think I have a pretty clear fold. My opponent is, in my opinion, too aware to be overplaying anything I can really beat. Coming up with bluffs after he calls 275 on the flop is pretty hard, and it's pretty ambitious to imagine that's what he's doing. So I have to give him credit and fold. He would later tell me he had pocket queens, which makes a lot of sense. In this last big hand of the day, I have Jack 10 suited in the under the gun one seat and raised to $35. The low Jack and the big blind both call. So $105 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes King nine, six, all spades. So I flop a flush. The big blind checks. I bet $40. The low Jack calls and the big blind folds. So now there's $185 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit seven. I bet $110 here, still with a flush with my jack 10 of spades, and my opponent again makes the call. 
So now there's $405 in the pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit 10. So now the board is king, nine, six, seven, 10 with king, nine, and six of spades. And I have jack 10 of spades. So I still have a really strong hand. My opponent has about 575 behind. And I think shoving is certainly an option here. But I also think there are a lot of strong hands I could have here that do benefit from checking and being able to call. I also think my opponent will probably bet a lot if given the opportunity. So I do check and my opponent moves all in for his last 575 or so. I obviously call and he announces two pair. I tabled the hand and he doesn't show what two pair he had and mucks. So that's a pretty solid end to a pretty swingy session. I end up making about $1,100 for the day, which I'm fine with. Got into some tricky spots. I'm not really sure in retrospect if getting in 675 with pocket queens was great against uh, the opponent I did it against, even though it's obviously fine and good in a vacuum. But overall, the day turns out fine. So I'll be back with you in two weeks. Hopefully by then I'll be out of this downswing. I've also switched casinos, which is a fishy thing I sometimes do when I'm running bad. And the casino I'm moving to is probably one where I'm going to be playing bigger games more frequently. So hopefully I'll run hot in those and have some fun hand histories for you here in the next episode. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 